Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. Confusion and anger continues to grow over NASI's mixed messaging on preferred COVID-19 vaccines. Is this going to spark the refusal of those vaccines? The Canadian government is discussing the possibility of a vaccine certificate or passport to help facilitate post-pandemic travel. Maybe the trick to normalcy, but is Canada ready for that? And it's Mental Health Week. Dr. Evan Wood joins us to discuss the shortcomings of Canada's mental health support and a high the need for innovative treatments. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We'll start with vaccines. I know you're probably overloaded and maybe even a little tired about hearing about COVID-19 and vaccines. And hey, I'm putting my hand up too. I'm in there as well. But this is an important discussion to be had because, well, for a variety of reasons. Number one, You heard during the news this morning that Ontario might shorten the length of time between COVID-19 vaccine doses. Not only that, but it's also looking at mixing and matching doses as it prepares to receive uh, a lot more of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Health Minister Christine Elliott yesterday saying that the added supply might allow the province to shorten the current four-month interval between the first and second doses. We expect that with the much larger quantities of the Pfizer vaccines that we're receiving throughout the month of May, that we may well be able to shorten the timeline for people to receive their second doses. And if if we are able to do that, then we will be able to contact people. We're prepared to do that manually. Now, if that happens, yes, people will be contacted to arrange a a new time for their second appointment. If you already had your first shot, you already have a date at least for shot number two. Not only that, so now that not only they're looking at shortening the interval time, mixing and matching doses, but we also heard yesterday from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NASI, that uh, said that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is A-OK for people 30-plus. A lot of vaccine news over the last 24 hours. So let's bring in our first guest. Dr. Brian D. Lichty is an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine with the McMaster Immunology Research Center, and he joins us this morning. Dr. Lichty, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm not too bad. Yourself? Good. Excellent. The health minister yesterday saying that they're looking at possibly shortening the length of time between COVID-19 vaccine doses. What does this suggestion tell us in terms of where we are in our vaccination efforts? Well, it's good news in that um, they wouldn't be saying that if they didn't have intel that says they're going to get enough deliveries to be able to do that in the next, you know, several weeks or months. It must mean that they'll be able to move up that second dose, which is good news. The first dose is actually quite protective. There's very good data coming out of particularly Britain where they're ahead of us in this, showing that that first uh, dose keeps people in the hospital, which is the main thing. Um, and and protects them until they get their second dose. But the second dose is what really drives home the immunity that uh, will keep you protected longer term. Yeah, that second dose or that booster shot, from what I've read and heard, takes the efficacy from, you know, around 60-some-odd, 70% to, you know, the 90s. And that's really that extra oomph of protection, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So the first one, like I said, it keeps you out of the hospital, but it's not, um, you know, completely protective none of it is but it's 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 good uh, it's better than nothing uh, for all for a lot of people um, and then the second one like you said drives it up to a point that uh, gives you very good protection 
Pfizer recommends a 21-day interval between its two shots. Moderna recommends four weeks. Oxford AstraZeneca advises between four and 12 weeks, which is quite quite the range. Those intervals are drastically different compared to the four months that we're using. Um, How effective can a reduction in the timeline uh, create in terms of protection? You mentioned that, you know, the the first dose is going to keep out of hospital. The second dose is going to, I guess, cover up the rest of it. Um, How big of a a deal is this in reducing this interval time? Um, It's just good news for the individuals who get that second dose. Uh, There's different ways to look at this. So, of course, your listeners are mostly thinking about themselves, which is understandable or a family member or a loved one who's had their one shot, um, governments and regulatory bodies and, and the healthcare system has to worry about the system they run and and the population as a whole. So that led to the sort of the, the math saying that it made more sense to give more people one shot while supplies were limiting because that keeps people out of the hospital and that's you know the first thing we need to achieve here on the way towards opening up you know, society again this summer, hopefully. Uh, the second dose being brought earlier um, is good news for the individuals because that means that uh, you know, the math now says that they can go ahead and shorten the interval and, and fully protect or, or almost fully protect those people who, who are waiting for their second shot um, because there's more vaccine around. And the advice from the companies, you know, that isn't surprising uh, either in that it, they, they will only base their advice on what they know. So the thing they test in their trials is the thing they recommend. It doesn't necessarily mean that a different interval is, is worse. It just means they didn't try it, so they're not going to recommend it. Right. That, that makes perfect sense. Uh, we also heard yesterday from provincial health officials that they've asked NASI to check on the potential of mixing doses between the first and second shot. So shot number one might mean Moderna. Shot number two might mean Pfizer or, or a combination of the other two that have been approved as well. Um, do you expect a mixed vaccine method can be as effective as a double dose of one vaccine? It, it Immunologically, it should be better. Uh, there's a lot of, of data from clinical trials with other vaccine platforms that are being developed around the world for, say, malaria or other things we don't have vaccines for yet, most of what's got interrupted by the pandemic that was already showing that, that what's called a heterologous prime boost where you have two different vaccines. It gives a better um, quality um, of immunity than getting the same vaccine multiple times. Uh, but... <laughs> It hadn't been tried yet. So this is currently being tested in trials in Britain. Um, the first thing we'll learn from those studies is the safety and is it true for these vaccines that, that you get a better immune response? Um, if there's less circulating coronavirus there because they've had a good vaccine program, it'll be a little hard to see how well it protects people. Um, but we now understand better than we did you know, going into this what level of immunity seems to protect people. So they'll be able to make good predictions off of the early-term immune data. Um, and, of course, it's the safety data that regulatory bodies are waiting for before they'll go out on a limb a bit and make a recommendation beyond other than right now science predicts that it should be better. 
Dr. Brian D. Lichty is an associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine with the McMaster Immunology Research Center. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL and 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. Uh, now, the, the shortening of the length of time between the vaccine doses, the, the interval, um, the uh, mixing and matching of doses wasn't the only notable news about COVID-19 vaccines uh, yesterday. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization also recommended Johnson & Johnson's vaccine to adults 30 and older. There is a caveat in this, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But before we do, can we call J&J's one-shot vaccine a welcome addition to the group of vaccines we already have? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, the technology is excellent, and um, it's um, it's going to make a big difference, particularly in parts of the world. I mean, we always focus on Ontario or Canada, but uh, you got to remember that this is a worldwide problem, and we need solutions, um, you know, for the world, even to keep Canada safe, right? Um, we don't want coronavirus circulating all over the world well we think we've solved the problem and then have variants arise that we haven't solved the problem for and so vaccines like that one where it's one dose and you don't need the the same cold chain logistics as as the mrna vaccines are going to make a big difference in many other parts of the world here um it's also you know a, a, a perfectly great option the, and I know what you were getting to there because Nasi also kind of tried to get a little bit, I think, um, too fine about their advice um, in terms of they also said that if you can wait for the mRNA vaccine in some circumstances, they recommend that as well. Now they're giving mixed messages, but I think the way to boil that all down is to think of it as you should do whatever is the least risk for you or the smartest thing for you, but that's hard because they're putting it on individuals to assess their own risk. Um, and your risk actually can change as you walk through a store, uh, <laughs> yeah. literally. So uh, for a lot of people in Ontario and Alberta and places where there's outbreaks and there's a lot of circulating variants and stuff, I would recommend getting whatever vaccine is approved for you that's available to you right now and don't wait because that is less risky than continuing to uh, live your life at risk while while we're in this third wave and there's a lot of infections going around and ICUs are full and they're you know still struggling with dealing with the number of especially younger people who are coming in who are really really sick. You mentioned uh, the caveat or, or, or the but, I guess, in NACI's recommendation. They're, they're saying, hey, adults 30 plus can get the J&J vaccine if the individual does not wish to wait for an mRNA vaccine, which is Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna, and if the benefits uh, outweigh the risk for the individual. Uh, you mentioned as well, we, we've heard all along that we should get the first vaccine available to us as soon as possible. But NACI's message seems to say that, you know what, Pfizer and Moderna are, are probably better for you or the better shots to get compared to AstraZeneca and JJ. It's just adding to the confusion, isn't it? It is. I mean, uh, you know, the stats say it's um, a little less risky. <laughs> but the, the, the numbers are that uh, it's probably one in 250,000 uh, people get blood clots with you know, if you put the data all in from various sources, it's somewhere in that range. It's 
it's still a little hard to tell, and it's also a little hard to tell whether it depends on whether you're a male or a female and what your age is. Um, it still seems a little bit like women are, are, are a little more prone to the to blood clotting, um, but it's hard to tell because different populations have received those vaccines at different jurisdictions. So having said that, it's a little hard to assess the risk, and it's a little higher with the adenoviral vectored vaccines. But it's also a little hard for every individual to assess their own personal risk. And that's why um, it's uh, maybe unfortunate they, that they, they muddied the waters a little bit and, and confused people who are probably already a little confused and put it on them to assess all of this math that they can't even figure out. <laughs> and you know what? It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not hard to confuse people because you have Health Canada saying one thing, NACI saying another, the provincial and federal government saying uh, another thing. Public health units are involved as well. There's a lot of voices, a lot of hands in the cookie jar, so to speak. Yeah, but everyone, you know, in their life, you get advice from different sources about all sorts of things, and you start to understand once you've heard it enough that. You know, you'll get a certain type of advice from your Uncle Jim and a different sort of advice from your your dad and a different sort of advice from your brother. And um, NASI has been more cautious all the way through this than, say, Health Canada or um, um, some of the other agencies. So, you know, if your uncle's always more cautious than, than your dad and the advice they give, you kind of get used to that in real life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a little bit of that. They're being cautious here and having asking people to really assess their, their level of risk. Um, at least uh, there's more sort of detailed information available about where there are break, outbreaks, right? So, you know, listeners should know if they're living in one of those so-called hotspots based on postal code that have been noted for... Um, you know, greater effort in terms of vaccinating. So if you're living in a hotspot particularly and you're going out into the community at all for work or, or otherwise, you should get whatever vaccine you can get your hands on because your risk level is such that it's safer to get any vaccine. Agreed. Brian, uh, Dr. Lichty, uh, thanks for uh, joining us today and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Dr. Brian D. Lichty is Associate Professor in Pathology and Molecular Medicine with the McMaster Immunology Research Center, uh, shedding some insight on the shortening of the length between the vaccine doses, the mixing and matching, the intervals, Johnson & Johnson, and NASI's, uh, I guess, convoluted message. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Will we soon have a COVID-19 vaccination certificate system in Canada? To determine whether or not you're able to travel internationally, and who knows, maybe even nationally? Well, one week ago today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the federal government is working on it on a scientific basis. Pre-pandemic, certificates of vaccination are a part of international travel to certain regions and uh, are naturally to be expected when it comes to uh, this pandemic and and, uh, the, the coronavirus. How we actually roll that out in alignment with partners and, uh, and uh, allies around the world uh, is something that we're working on right now to coordinate. All right, so how is this going to work? And, and what is this going to look like? And how soon can we expect this certificate system? And, and should we have to get it? 
lot of questions here to help shine a light on all of this is David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News, who wrote a very insightful piece on globalnews.ca. David, good morning. How are you? Morning. Good. How are you, Rick? I'm not too bad. Uh, we know that the UK government is going to begin issuing a form of vaccine passport. Is Canada likely to follow suit? And how is this going to work? You know, despite what the PM said, my sense was, and I've talked to, you know, uh, more than a dozen officials in, in a whole bunch of different government departments here in Ottawa, uh, my sense is they are they are talking or they're monitoring what others are doing on these so-called vaccine certificates, some call them vaxports, um, to, to see where the world lands. But I don't get the sense there's any urgency. For one thing, I mean, think about the political situation right now, Rick. We've got Doug Ford screaming for borders to be shut down. No premier anywhere in the country wants travel restrictions lifted. If anything, they want them tightened. So the idea, you know, passport or not, that we're going to somehow quickly uh, bring back foreign tourists or, for that matter, issue some document for Canadians to get out of the country, you know, I don't think there's a rush politically for these these, um, certificates. But the Canadians also saying, you know, there's there's some science problems with the idea of these certificates, and there's some sort of Canadian problems. I'll, I'll deal with the science first. Is for one thing, we the science is unsettled still about uh, the idea of if you're vaccinated, are you still contagious? It's likely you're not. Uh, that's what Dr. Teresa Tam said. It's likely you're not contagious if you've been vaccinated, but we're not 100% sure. So it kind of makes it pointless really to be carrying around vaccine certificates to let you do something if in fact you could still be coming in and, and be contagious that's one issue around the science still need to see where that shakes out two is we've got all these different vaccines uh the johnson and johnson is approved as a single-use vaccine great others need a second dose some may need a booster and so you know until we understand that and again science is still trying to figure out uh, boosters and dose intervals, what do you put on somebody's, quote, vaccine certificate in terms of renewal times, etc.? Different jurisdictions will have different decisions on that. That might be different, say, in Germany, than in the U.K., than in the U.S., than in Canada. So that's the science. Uh, and then there's the question, I mean, let's not get started. Don't forget the U.S. has not approved the AstraZeneca vaccine, and yet in Canada, 1.7 million doses of AstraZeneca um, have been put in somebody's arms. And so so does the U.S. accept the vaccine certificate from a vaccine not approved? Do we ex- would we accept, say, the Russian Sputnik vaccine if you've got that? Is that good for, because we haven't approved that in Canada. That's the science. And now here's the unique Canadian problem. The health data that you would need on this travel document, a federal travel document, who holds it? Provinces. Provinces are the ones who have the vaccination record of everybody in that province. And so how, do, how does the federal government then reach into provincial databases, you know, uniquely and with some sort of consistency to pull out information on a timely basis for a federal travel document. So those are just some of the problems in terms of implementing a vaccine certificate. Um, I know other countries are ready to go. And then there's, there, there's just still the idea, is it a good idea at all? Um, because, again, there's other ways to ensure that travelers either going to or fro um, are, are, are safe, and that is taking a look at vaccination levels in the entire population of, say, the U.S. or Canada or the U.K. and making specific rules based on that. And then the other thing is rapid testing. Rapid testing is really where, you know, I think the travel industry has been pushing so hard. Rapid testing once you arrive, rapid testing as you leave, rapid testing all the time is, uh, is also got to be in the mix here. 
th- this is a giant onion, and you've, you, you've kind of peeled off uh, multiple layers in terms of the contagiousness and the science behind that. The booster shots, you know, will these vaccines uh, or these vax ports say, hey, I'm, I'm partially vaccinated, I'm, I'm fully vaccinated. Uh, you have the, you know, different nations around the world. So are they going to accept uh, vaccination passports that have AstraZeneca or just Pfizer or just Moderna mm-hmm. or a multitude? There's also the, I guess, ethical and privacy part of this as well, which you've kind of spoken to as well. Also, what if people don't want a vaccine, but they still want to travel? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I can give you some experience. My, it turns out my family physician is also a travel medicine doctor. And so, um, you know, I, I travel cover the prime minister when he you know, may, might go to Africa or to Asia. And uh, as a result, I have to go to my physician and say, okay, what vaccines do I need to be safe from you know, all the other diseases around the world. Yellow fever is one of those, one of those diseases where in some uh, South American countries, some African countries, you cannot get in unless you show proof of your yellow fever vaccination. It's called the yellow card, and you have to have that. But it's just a card, but your doctor fills out. So it's not a database somewhere or whatever. It's just a card that your doctor fills out. And my, my, my family physician, who's the, the guy who gave me the vaccine, uh, as I said, he's, a, he's also travel medicine, and, and he spent some time working in Africa, and he'd seen borders where if you showed up at a border at some African country without your yellow fever card, then the border guard would say, right, in that room, and there's like a 16-year-old kid with a needle who's going to put it in your arm. Is that what you'd like? That's If you don't want, as a traveler, to be vaccinated against COVID, you could be faced with non-entry, or you could be forced in the room and pay whatever fee it's going to take to get whatever vaccine is on offer in whatever country you're visiting. I, I don't know about you, but I'm a little more confident in, in our Canadian healthcare system for all its warts. Um, I'd rather know the vaccine I'm getting in the Canadian context may be the safest one. So, so you could see that having effect. You know, the, the idea of needing proof of vaccination from other uh, diseases, uh, we, we have had this. I mentioned yellow fever. The prime minister mentioned this in his remarks as well uh, last week that, you know, pre-pandemic, we did have some systems for vaccination certificates and for specific regions of the world, etc. And in fact, even if it wasn't required, your doctor would often say, if you're going to certain areas, you definitely want to have your typhoid or your typhus uh, update. I mentioned yellow fever. There's lots of nasty bugs in the tropics that you want to have a vaccine for before you go get uh, go traveling. But that would be voluntary. But and now we mix in the the COVID vaccine. And you know that's uh, would it facilitate travel? Would it be best to get it? it? It seems to me all the public health professionals saying, you know, this is a really good idea to get vaccinated, whether you're traveling or not. Go out and and get a dose. First one is the best one to get. One more question for David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. When can Canadians expect a decision either way on a possible Vaxport system? Again, that's really unclear. Uh, I've been trying to get an answer from the government on that. The, the first thing is working out the science. And so the lead agency on that is the Public Health Agency of Canada, PHAC. PHAC, of course, is also very busy managing a pandemic right now. So they're a little uh, stressed for that. So that's, that's PHAC's work. But this would also involve Transport Canada. It would involve Public Safety Canada because they're the people who who run our uh, employ our border guards. Um, and right now, you know, I think also we'll take a, a cue from what they're doing at the World Health Organization. We have a Canadian representative there, and what they're doing in Europe. And in Europe, they've got what's called a digital. They've got a digital green certificate. That's what it's called. So this will be on your phone to say I've got my vaccine. But even though the EU's got a digital green certificate out there, it also comes with a rule 
no country can prohibit travel if you don't have a certificate. So it's a, it's a completely optional uh, sort of thing that just might speed you through a checkpoint, but you'll still get through a checkpoint um, should should you need to. So timeline for these things, as I say, I don't get the sense the Canadian government is pushing hard for this. The travel industry, they would like to see Ottawa and the provinces work something out for the day, whenever it may comes, that we are ready to welcome back foreign tourists and for that day when Canadians are ready to pack their bags and go abroad. David, I know you're a busy guy. Really appreciate the time this morning and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Yep, no problem. Thanks, Rick. Cheers. David Inkin is a chief political correspondent for Global News, shedding some light on a potential, really at this point, it's just being talked about. It's it's nowhere near the House of Commons. There's no draft bill being, uh, you know, debated or voted on anytime soon. But it seems like that a Canadian vaccine certificate may someday be a reality. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This week is Mental Health Week, and Numinous Wellness is striving to highlight the need for innovative treatments to help people heal and be well, including the use of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. You may have heard of this. A clinical trial of MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of severe chronic PTSD shows that 88% of participants who received three controlled and supervised MDMA-assisted therapy sessions experienced a clinically significant reduction in symptoms. 67% no longer qualified for PTSD diagnosis compared to 32% of participants who were given a placebo. So this is very, very encouraging news, especially for those who have been diagnosed with PTSD. And we should also mention that the study participants had PTSD diagnoses from uh, a range of causes, uh, combat-related events, abuse, sexual harm, accidents, and developmental trauma. Dr. Evan Wood is the chief medical officer of Numinous Wellness, and he joins us now. Dr. Wood, good morning. Morning. Uh, before we get into the details of the study and what your company is trying to achieve, tell us more about Numinous Wellness. What are you guys all about? Yeah, well, this is probably the most exciting area in mental health. Um, it's an open secret in the healthcare system, and I say this as a clinical epidemiologist, a specialist physician, and a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia. It's really an open secret that the majority of treatments that we have for different mental health conditions have really dubious benefits and, and, and a lot of side effects that make most pharmacological treatments really unattractive to patients. They um, have unwanted side effects and, and at best really tend to numb the, the challenges that people with mental health struggles have. Uh, the, the, the new thing that's really exciting uh, carries a lot of cultural baggage going back to the 1960s and 70s when people were using different psychedelic drugs recreationally. But what many people don't know is that at that time, researchers, including at Ivy League U.S. universities, began researching those substances as being able to engender transformative mental health changes, and whether that's addiction or treatment-resistant depression or, as your introduction implied, post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, just last uh, this this week, the the reports of the phase three trial of MDMA assisted psychotherapy for post traumatic stress disorder that really blow um, everything that we've got out of the water in terms of the remarkable 
benefits. And that's what our company is doing. Numinous Wellness is a mental health company that's working with a range of different psychedelic substances, both in our laboratory research and also in our clinics, to try and bring about these new treatments and make them a mainstream part of the healthcare system in Canada. Before we dive into uh, why, what exactly uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is, how are people treated now? What are they being given? How are they expected to cope with their, their day-to-day challenges? Well, there's there's two general big sort of big bucket approaches. One would be counseling and psychotherapy and talking with a skilled mental health practitioner and things like cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, strategies often delivered by psychologists to try and change the way we think. Um, if you have a very much glasses half empty perspective and you see things in a negative light, that does tend to affect our mood. And we believe that the underpinnings of depression are in many ways um, how we think, though there's genetic contributions to that as well. Um, alternatively, you might go to your family doctor or a psychiatrist and get an antidepressant medication. And as I was alluding to, um, first, when it comes to psychotherapy, that can work. Um, Sometimes it takes years, and it doesn't benefit everybody. A significant proportion of people will not benefit from uh, traditional psychotherapy. And when it comes to antidepressant medications, which um, uh, sort of your your Prozac type of uh, antidepressant pill, those get used for all sorts of different mental health challenges, whether it be anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression. Um, they get used off-label, uh, which means that they aren't really tested in that, but physicians try, or for indications like depression where they've been tried. And just to give you an example, the British Medical Journal did a meta-analysis of every study of antidepressant medications and really concluded that it's not clear that they are you know, arriving at the benefits we would hope and that there's dangerous side effects, particularly things like suicidality that actually can be brought about, particularly in youth that are prescribed these medications. So we're really in a situation where we have a a crisis of mental health in Canada, but we don't have great treatments. And then when you look at what the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has concluded for both um, psilocybin and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, giving them breakthrough therapy status. Uh, Two weeks ago, we had a paper on psilocybin, which is the active molecule in magic mushrooms that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, showing a dramatic benefit for people with depression. And then this week, a study with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, a large phase three trial, the definitive type of evidence that would require approval by the U.S. FDA or Health Canada, showing you know really remarkable benefits, not the kind of subtle benefits that have been seen in, in past psychoactive medication trials. This is a, you know, a home run on all fronts. So really exciting because I think it's a, it's a total paradigm shift for how we approach mental health challenges from the intention of uh, a curative intent and really helping people work through some of the challenges that they've been having as opposed to just trying to numb their symptoms of anxiety or depression in a way that, as I've said, patients really tend not to find particularly useful. So how does psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy work? You mentioned magic mushrooms, MDMA. What, what is happening in the body that these substances, if you will, uh, trigger a better response or potentially do so? 
Yeah, and it's really the combination of the psychotherapy with the psychedelic experience that's critical. So these these substances are known to um, create an altered state of consciousness, and um, that might mean in the case of MDMA, somebody going out on a Friday night and going to a club and dancing, that's not likely to have any benefit in terms of someone's post-traumatic stress disorder. What MDMA-assisted psychotherapy involves is... Um, some preparatory work again with a a trained psychotherapist like a like a PhD psychologist or another trained psychotherapist to essentially get uh, an individual prepared for the psychedelic experience then in a supervised clinical environment in a healthcare setting the individual would take the medicine with again a trained therapist who would essentially bring them to a place where they're interested to make the the changes or they're able to in the case of an individual who might have come back from Iraq uh, from Iraq or Afghanistan they're facing such challenges with trauma they might not even be able to to get into a conversation with a therapist about what they're going through because they're so traumatized and we know that MDMA essentially creates a psychological state where people can go back to that traumatic experience. They can bring some meaning to it and package it up in a way that they can actually break through and move past it. Uh, and then after those uh, study medication psychotherapy sessions, there's integrative work that involves not using the medication, but but integrating the experience and the meaning that people have taken from that. And in the case of treatment-resistant depression or treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder, the studies have shown that that process of preparatory work, medication administration, and sort of having a therapist guide you through your intentions and then work to consolidate that change we see people that, you know, like I said, uh, uh, first responders who may have come to a horrible accident in a highway or a family has died or uh, veterans coming back from war-torn areas that can't leave their house because of their panic symptoms or people that can't get out of bed because of their depression. They've tried, you know, cocktails of, of different psychoactive medications or psychotherapy and haven't been able to find relief that are back productive members of society, volunteering or working, um, back uh, living their lives in a rewarding way and, and integrated with their family again. If you look at the data, it's just uh, remarkable, the benefits. Dr. Evan Wood is the Chief Medical Officer at Numinous Wellness. We're talking about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and how it could help in the treatment of severe chronic PTSD. Are there any fears of addiction? Yeah, that's what's uh, interesting about these molecules. And we, in many ways, lump different drugs together when alcohol is different than tobacco, is different than cannabis, is different from the psychedelic substances that we're talking about today. And we actually know really clearly from animal studies, often with laboratory rats, where you can give them different substances and they'll behave in a certain way to compulsively obtain a substance, whether it's heroin or tobacco, you can clearly show a substance is addictive. And with laboratory animals, the psychedelic substances aren't addictive. And we know that actually from real world experience with human beings that use these substances uh, from the illegal market, that the, the nature of the experience is not such that people tend to go back to it in a compulsive way. So the psychedelic substances, including MDMA, tend not to have the same kind of addictive potential as something like cocaine or alcohol or tobacco. Where does this method stand with Health Canada? Are they investigating? Are they looking into it? Where, where does it stand with them? 
Yeah, it's challenging because these substances carry the sort of cultural baggage of the 1960s and 70s. But Health Canada has signaled its intent to revise some of its regulations to allow compassionate access to these substances. Whether they'll actually follow through with that uh, remains to be seen. But when you get publication of data like these from a phase three randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial that essentially hit a home run in terms of demonstrating a benefit, Health Canada and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration can't ignore it, and there'll be organizations like ours that are looking to move forward and, and support policymakers in making the right decision for the health and safety of Canadians, because there's clearly something here that could benefit and very, very little risk. The uh, clinical trial of MDMA-assisted therapy that I uh, referenced at the start of the segment didn't uncover any serious safety concerns with the therapy. That, that's got to be a huge development. Yeah, and actually the, the Phase 3 trial built upon six prior Phase 2 trials, so smaller studies, six smaller studies. And when the data were merged from those six studies or when we look at the Phase 3 trial, in comparison to antidepressant therapy, which is a standard of care for post-traumatic stress disorder, if you look at the studies that were used to get those drugs approved, a study was published a few years ago that showed that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is safer uh, than, than antidepressant medications in terms of risk of suicide and other other harms that are experienced by people with those medications. And it's important for your listeners to understand this isn't like taking an antidepressant every day for years or potentially the rest of your life. This is a short-term process over a couple of weeks where you would go through the process of preparation, then the medication administration, psychotherapy, and then the integration work. And then the expectation is that your treatment is completed and you're, you've moved past your challenges here. And that's what these studies have shown is that it's not a a daily medication administration that might have side effects or risks associated with it. It's a time-limited process where you're looking to move someone to a new place with curative intent. So where do we go from here, Dr. Wood, and, and how soon can this be, I guess, legalized, for lack of a better term? Yeah, it would be it would be regulated and part of the mainstream healthcare system rather than something that that of course as you say does require the drug laws to be amended, but it, it wouldn't be for, you know, widespread recreational use. What we're talking about and what MAPS is talking about as part of their phase 3 trial is that these are medical interventions basically and it would have to go through the same regulatory process as other medical interventions, but that research is being done, a path is clearly being charted, and the evidence and safety data are so compelling that it's really just now a process with Health Canada, and I don't, I don't think they're going to go out of their way or make any exception, and I don't think Canadians would want that. But the path that we're on now is a sort of drug discovery development path as the same for any sort of cardiac device or new medication. And Health Canada will be looking at these data, and they clearly suggest that there's something here. And I think that in the community, because Canada has among the highest rates of post-traumatic stress disorder in the developed world, there's going to be a lot of Canadians that are clamoring and wanting to see Health Canada take action. And it'll simply be unethical because of uh, the stigma towards these treatments has uh, Health Canada sitting on their hands. And I just don't anticipate that. So we only got a bit, about a minute here. Two to five years, can, can that become a reality? Is that a realistic time frame? 
You know, I think for psilocybin, the active ingredient to magic mushrooms, it's actually a naturally occurring molecule. It's been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years in traditional medicine. I see a, a pathway there that, that could happen in the next year or two, frankly, if the government shows leadership for MDMA, probably 2023 by the time the final FDA and Health Canada approvals are in place. Interesting and certainly exciting for those who suffer from PTSD and some of the other uh, illnesses or or combat-related events, accidents that uh, will find some benefit in this treatment. Dr. Wood, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for your interest. Dr. Evan Wood is the Chief Medical Officer of Numinous Wellness and uh, should note that millions of people are affected globally by PTSD. And he kind of referenced this. Canada uh, showed the highest incidence of PTSD in a large-scale study of 24 countries that indicated 1 in 11 Canadians will suffer from PTSD in their lifetime. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe this uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy will happen in a year, two, five years, and more and more people will get uh, the assistance and the help uh, that they need and that they uh, require. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.